This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker Magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Itch by Don DeLillo, which was published in The New Yorker in August of 2017. She was checking his ankles, shins, and thighs. She spoke absently about the pathology of the skin. He liked this term. It suggested a kind of criminal intent or an evil that befalls a person. The story was chosen by Joy Williams, who's the author of four novels and five story collections, including 99 Stories of God and The Visiting Privilege. Hi, Joy. Hi, Deborah. <laughs> so you, you said from the beginning when I first asked you that you wanted to read something by Don DeLillo. Why was that? Oh, he's my favorite author. <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> and uh, I think his short stories are, are wonderful. The Angel Esmeralda is a beautiful, compact, uh, thrilling little book. And I hope he does another collection soon. And it's amazing that a novelist of such great length and power can also master that shorter form. Yeah, like you say, he ranges from a book like Underworld, which is more than 800 pages, a kind of epic sweeping novel to to quite short stories. Um, not everybody can do that. No. <laughs> I, I feel like he also ranges between styles. That some of some of what he writes is written in this very rich, elusive, lush, dense language full of full of references, and then some of it is is really quite spare and stark and, and pared down. If you agree with that, <laughs> which which of those categories do you think this story, The Itch, fits into? Well, The Itch is hilarious, I think. <laughs> it, it, is, it is so funny. But when DeLillo is hilarious, there's such a, a depth to the darkness. He gets so much humor out of just conversation with people trying so desperately to communicate or understand with each other. And there's a, there's a great grave hilarity be, behind all of that. Yeah. And yet they totally fail to communicate what they oh, need to communicate. <laughs> always, always. And always searching for some new way of uh, communicating, either through uh, the, the look, great concentration, or uh, many yeah. other matters. But Yeah. <laughs> so the two of you are quite different as writers, though. Obviously, there are some points of overlap. What has his work meant to you as a writer or as a reader? I think he's been enormously influential. I mean, even in uh, various moments of one's own experience of the world, I walked 
on the moving walkway from Terminal A to Terminal B, the Atlanta <laughs> airport recently, and it was such a DeLillo moment. It was, uh, it was this dark, gloomy, heaven knows where we were. It was between Terminal A and Terminal B, and it was <laughs> enclosed and very dark. But over the moving walkways, there was this kind of mesh of green that uh, suggested a, uh, a rainforest or a beautiful, soothing forest. And there was bird song being piped, piped into it. It was so, it was so disorienting, and it was so Delillo. It was like the perfect moment. And I think that's how he's affected our our culture and uh, and other writers. the The way they the way they are conscious of the moment, the way they see the absurdity or perceive the moment. Right, and then sort of all of our social constructs mm-hmm. and, and how we live within them and, and fight against them in some ways. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Joy Williams reading The Itch by Don DeLillo. The Itch. But nobody showed up, so we sat a while looking at the wall. It was one of those Saturdays that feel like Sunday. He didn't know how to explain this. It happened intermittently, more often in the warmer months, and it was probably normal, although he'd never discussed it with anyone. After the divorce, he felt an odd numbness, mental and physical. He looked in the mirror, studying the face that looked back. At night, he kept to his half of the bed, with his back to the other half. Over time, a life slithered out. He talked to people, took long walks, He bought a pair of shoes, but only after testing them rigorously, both shoes, not just one. He walked from one end of the shoe store to the other, four times at various speeds, then sat and looked down at the shoes. He took one shoe off and handled it, pressing the instep, placing his hand inside the shoe, nodding at it, tapping with the fingers of his free hand on the rigid sole and heel. The salesman stood in the near distance, watching and waiting whoever he was, whatever he said and did when he wasn't there. In the office, his desk was set alongside a window, and he spent time looking at a building across the street where nothing was visible inside the rows of windows. There were times when he could not stop looking. He looks and scratches, semi-surreptitiously. Certain days, it's the left wrist, upper arms at home in the evening, thighs and shins most likely at night. When he's out walking, it happens now and then, mostly forearms. He was 44 years old, trapped in his body, arms, legs, torso. Face did not itch. Scalp developed something that a doctor gave a name to, but it itched only rarely, then not at all, so the name didn't matter. His eyes swept the windows across the street horizontally, never vertically. He did not try to imagine the lives inside. He began to think of the itch as sense data from the exterior, caused by some outlying substance, unanalyzable. The air in the room or on the street or in the atmosphere itself, a corruption of the planetary environment. He thought of this but did not believe it. It was semi-science fiction. But it was also a form of comfort during those long periods of unrest when he was stretched and then curled, and then belly down in bed, a raw body in cotton pajamas, 
awash in creams and lotions, trying not to scratch or rub. He told his friend Joel that Saturday, sometimes felt like Sunday, and he waited for a response. Joel had two kids and a wife named Sandra. They were Sandra and Joel, never the reverse. Saturday, Sunday, so what? Wouldn't it be more interesting if Tuesday felt like Wednesday? Even better, if Tuesday of this week felt like Wednesday of next week. Joel was a fellow member of the office staff. He wrote poetry when he was able to find the time, and he'd recently stopped trying to get the work published. He said, how's the itch? I think of the itch in world history and my mind goes blank. The friend, the former wife, the doctors and nurses, aides and scrubs and sneakers, they knew, no one else. An emperor, a member of the royal family, you need a context that you can work with, a famous statesman scratching in secret, something that you could research, find some satisfaction. You think so. Or biblical, absolutely. You might find that you're part of a great narrative, thousands of years, the Holy Land, the itch. One word, a single syllable. Four letters. Do you read the Bible ever? A plague in Bible times. I'm serious. So am I. Do the research. I know I would. I can imagine how awful. Middle of the night. Middle of the day. Even worse, his friend said. He was seeing a woman, superficially seeing her. They were two reticent individuals, and he hadn't said a word about the itch. When and if intimacy occurred, he hoped it would not be unanticipated. She might otherwise feel traces of the lotions and ointments, his body to hers, arms, legs, elsewhere, the ointments and hypoallergenic creams, the super-high-potency corticosteroids. They had dinner now and then, went to a movie, implicitly working out a routine that did not bury them in total mutual anonymity. Her name was Anna, with a single N, and this was a fragment of information that interested him, the fact of the missing N. He liked to scribble the name, pencil on notepad, large A, small N, small A. In the office, he entered the name on his desktop device in different fonts, or all caps, or upside down, or cursive, or boldface, or in the characters of remote, non-Roman alphabets. At dinner, she spoke about the movie they just watched. He'd nearly forgotten it, scene after scene of foreboding menace. The near-empty theater was more interesting than the movie. He leaned across the dinner table, sort of half-comically, and asked about her name. Adherence to a family tradition? A name from a European novel? No such tradition, she said. No foreign influence. Just a name, spelled a certain way. He nodded slowly, marooned in his slanted body posture, and surprised at the disappointment he felt. Eventually he sat back, still nodding, and found himself imagining her body. Always the body. This was not an erotic set of curves, but something even more wondrous. The basic body, the primitive physical structure. She said that her mother's name was Florence, but her body here, in the chair across the table, the human, the person, the mass of flesh and blood ascendant over hundreds of thousands of years or more, millions of years, a body no different, essentially, in its sheer bodiness, 
from the humped and half-crawling forms that preceded it. He told himself to stop. They talked about the food in the restaurant. He asked her what her father's name was. In the morning, he walked along the hallway in the building where he worked, careful not to look directly at others heading toward their offices, four or five suits and ties, blouses and skirts. He liked to imagine them going nowhere, remaining in place with their feet moving up and down and their arms swinging slightly. His former wife had a certain kind of smile that he kept remembering. She isn't looking at him. She is smiling into space. Those four years together, before the seething weeks of conflict, how she blew kisses across the dinner table to wish away the itch. Those summer evening jogs along the river. The symmetry of the itch, both thighs, the crook of each elbow, left ankle, then right, the crotch does not itch. The buttocks, yes, when he removes his trousers before going to bed, and then it stops. He could not forget the smile. It was a beautiful moment, born in memory, her head turned away to the transfiguring past, the grandmother with a gift for storytelling, something way back then, and he wanted to follow the smile into her life to join her spell of recollection, a minute or an hour in flawless time. They were at Sunday brunch, two couples, and there was a football game on the TV placed over the bar at the other end of the room. The sound turned off. He could not stop looking at the screen. The brief action, the slow-motion replays, three or four replays of an ordinary run or pass or punt, different camera angles, and he joined the conversation at the table and ate his pancakes and kept on watching. He watched the commercials. The term Sunday brunch suggested a world of well-being. But Joel was talking about the current situation, nonstop global turmoil, naming countries and circumstances, putting down his fork so he could raise his hand and gesture in a whirling motion, elbow pinned on the table. Then he stopped speaking and paused to think, finally seeming to remember what he wanted to say next, hands still raised but motionless now, a request for silence from the others, and he stared into time and space and finally said that all the letters in the name Anna were also in the name Sandra. Sandra said, what do we do with this information? Three or four commercials every two or three minutes, commercials in clusters. He began to think that he was the only person anywhere and everywhere who was looking at the commercials. At this distance, the words on the screen that accompanied the images were just barely readable. Anna said, I'm looking at the food on my plate. The others waited, but this was all she had to say. He held his fork in a poised position. The first half ended, and after a long pause, he was able to stop watching. I take off my shirt. The itching starts. He was in the examining room, describing his situation to the dermatologist as he lay flat on his back wearing a knee-length garment, open-fronted over his boxer shorts. She was checking his ankles, shins, and thighs. She spoke absently about the pathology of the skin. He liked this term. It suggested a kind of criminal intent or an evil that befalls a person, hurled down from above, and he recalled Joel's remark about the curse-worthy nature of the itch something semi-biblical. 
He was nearing the end of his third visit to this doctor, and he wondered whether she would tell him to return next week, or in six months, or totally never. She recited the names of soap and shampoo brands, described conditions that might arise from symptoms such as his, and he tried to memorize all this, which was difficult to manage in his state of partial undress. She listed the hidden dangers of a number of ingredients in certain external analgesic medications. Do we need to be fully dressed, he thought, for our memory to function properly? I give some patients a pill, a patch, an injection, but what I am seeing in your case is that you need to think of your itch as a long-term commitment. The doctor checked his face, putting her gloved fingers to his cheekbones, forehead, and sideburns. Her assistant, Hannah, had materialized in a corner of the room, and they looked at each other blankly, he and Hannah, and then she left. Joel yielded to rapid-fire blinking when he had something personal to say. Here is what he said. There were times, standing over the toilet bowl at home, when he heard what sounded like words as his urine hit the water in the bowl. This happens how often? He said that it happened on average every two weeks or so. Words. He heard the semblance of a tiny voice saying a word, and then maybe another word, and he tried to describe the sound, his feet spread and his hands semi-cupped near his groin in demonstration. Tiny words. I'm not imagining this. Or a noise that is saying something. Only when the flow is light. Like something said, an utterance. Monosyllabic. They were in the locker room of a local gym in workout gear, getting ready for the squat jumps and the treadmill. You're a poet. Words everywhere. Psalm. Transrational poetry. A hundred years ago. Words that have shapes and sounds. The little blips in the water in the bowl. Zom. Transrational. Words and letters are free, outside reason and tradition. When was it ever the case, Joel said, that language could truly describe reality? They look at each other. It happens sometimes. She always initiates the look, her face empty of affect, and he stops speaking or eating and tells himself that it is time to settle into the look. He begins by closing his eyes and holding his breath for a long moment. He will allow himself to be her recruit in whatever it is they are doing. They never talk about the look. It happens, and then it stops. When he opens his eyes and resumes breathing, there she is, Anna, eyes trained on his face, and she is intent on seeing into him or through him dissolves the man in all his particulars in order to find something else, never mind what. Her face is cool and studied. Is this meant to be some kind of mutual introspection? Is it a simple respite from the skein of endless human exchange? He tries not to analyze the matter. A playful fragment of her childhood, a memory of bittersweet longing. Is each of them trying to imagine who the other person is within the freeze-framed face and eyes? A wordless glimpse of identity or just a vacant gaze? He tries to go blank to drain his eyes and mind of the spatial array of sensation, the mental debris. Maybe she simply wants to see and be seen. 
Then there is the crude feeling of some unmeant gratification, a creaturely need, the right hand on the left forearm, and at first he uses his fingertips to ease the itch, but in time the hand is in motion, and the fingernails are digging in like an earth-moving machine. He sits back, eyes closed, and feels a hovering sense of revenge. It doesn't matter to him if this is idiotic. Revenge on your body, Joel said. Maybe, I don't know. I can't help thinking of the itch as a symbol. See what you can come up with personally about yourself. Stick to your poetry. I'm trying to decide on a title for the thing I just wrote. Do you talk to Sandra? Sometimes, yes. She has opinions about what I write. Do you talk to Sandra about the itch? Of course not. Of course not. I know that. Thank you, he said. He stood on the corner, waiting for the light to change. Dogs on leashes lunging at each other. The left hand rubbing the right wrist, then the right hand rubbing the left wrist. There was a pause in traffic, and two people crossed the street, but he chose to stay where he was, knowing that the light would change in three, two, one second. He liked to watch the numbers drop. The eczema cream with 2% colloidal oatmeal. The multi-symptom psoriasis relief cream with 3% salicylic acid. The emollient-rich formula that provides 24-hour moisturization. His gangly frame and large front teeth gave him a friendly look. People in the office entrusted him with the occasional squalid secret. He was not a threat to do anything or say anything, to take advantage in some way of their faith in his apparent blandness. He and Joel were access specialists, facilitating the delivery of home health care services to disabled consumers of illegal drugs. They rarely spoke about the job they were doing. They talked about things that came and went, local news and weather, men firing guns nationwide. Now and then Joel read an obituary to the others in the room, six men and women confronting their screens. Some of the obits were improvised, pure fiction, and he got a few laughs and sometimes a burst of applause. The new doctor's name online in tribute was the Itchmeister. He was short and broad, with the look of a man who lives with one central obsession. He studied the patient who was standing in the examining room in his boxer shorts. Then the doctor whirled his hand, and the patient turned around. The doctor spoke authoritatively about the patient's history based on what he'd gleaned from reports and from what he was seeing on the body itself. Now the patient lay face up on the table. I take off my shirt and my pants and the itch begins, or the itch is just there, comes and goes night and day. They talked about the clothing he wore, the underclothes, about the pillow and the bedsheets. The itchmeister instilled confidence with a few short sentences, although he didn't seem to address the patient's remarks directly and unequivocally. From what I see, you are not suffering from weeping lesions or atopic dermatitis. He went on to name different creams for different kinds of itches. He warned against the steroid that thins the skin if used repeatedly. He wore a surgical gown so long that it concealed his footwear. This one stray rash here, near the underarm, do not touch. It is not scratch-worthy. 
The medications he cited were encased in language of a certain kind, fog-bound words and terms, syllable-ridden and somehow strangely totalitarian. Doctor told the patient to turn face down. The symmetry is astonishing, the left and rightness of it, don't you think? People who itch, worldwide, forearm, forearm, buttock, buttock, the simultaneity. Doctor spoke not to the body on the table, but to the room, the walls, maybe to a recording device concealed somewhere. It occurred to the patient that this entire session was for the benefit of the doctor's associates in a research institute in some crime-free suburb. When the visit was over, the Itchmeister did not simply leave the room. He seemed to flee. In the early days, when he was running along the river with his wife, he felt that he was leaving the itch behind. He was outrunning it. Sometimes he raised his arms as he ran, surrendering to a benevolent life force. Joel would not discuss the lines. They were just the lines. The spacing also was simply what it was. The space breaks, the word breaks, the dangling word. I want to be a poet to the bone, but there is nothing in the work that I want to talk about. He wanted to talk about the itch. Tell me again what the doctor said. Weeping lesions. I keep forgetting to look it up. Whatever the science, the term itself has terrific aesthetic appeal. Atopic dermatitis in human. Forget it. Joel kept repeating the phrase, weeping lesions, thinking into it, trying to say something funny. When he took off his shorts, his thighs began to itch. Anna was in bed, watching and waiting. He kept his hands steadfastly at his sides. The surroundings in her bedroom were unfamiliar, and he stood a moment, smiling, acknowledging her sweet scrutiny. The itch went away, but she was still there. What a deliverance it was for him, a release from day to day, he and she so simple, being happy for a time. They stood against the wall of the building, lunch break, two women, colleagues, smoking, and he positioned himself near the curbstone, watching them. I smoked twice in my life, he said. The first woman said, how old were you? Seventeen, then twenty-seven. You remember these numbers, she said. I remember them. I think about them. He liked watching them smoke. There was a casual grace in their gestures, the sort of autonomic movements of hand gliding toward face, lips parting, the way the head slips back, barely noticeable, as the woman inhales, first one and now the other, and then the head rocking slightly when she blows the smoke out of her mouth, the deep relief, eyes closing, one woman, briefly, then the other. He had to remind himself that he was separating the act from its consequences. How long did you smoke, the first woman said. First time, maybe a week and a half. Second time, second time, two weeks. And now you expect to live forever. Not when I'm in the office. What do you expect then? I expect to jump out the window next to my desk. The second woman said, take us with you. At home, he walked from one room to the other and then forgot why he was there. His smartphone rang and he went back to the first room and picked it up, half expecting to see a message telling him why he'd gone to the other room. Two hours later, he was back on an exam table. 
seated at the edge, doctor in her sixties, studying his left forearm, lifting and looking, peering into the scratch marks, into the pores, the tissue itself. Do not let others scratch your itch. It will not succeed, she said. You yourself must scratch. The room was small and seemed semi-abandoned, stale air, rumpled documents, pinned to cork boards, things scattered randomly. The doctor asked him questions and then repeated whatever he said. He tried to place her accent, Middle Europe maybe, and this gave him confidence in her abilities. When itching stops now and then, five minutes, six minutes, you are a little bereft. What do you think? He looked for a smile, but it wasn't there. You will spend less time in the shower. I have been told this. You have been told this, but not by me, she said. She was looking directly into his face now. She looked and talked. He was sure that she spoke four or five languages. Other patients, they are worse. I am also worse. You were nowhere in the competition. I fool myself. I try to talk myself out of being worse. You are eating. You are sleeping. I am eating. I have forgotten how to sleep. The older you will get, listen to me, the less you will walk and talk, and the more you will itch. She kept on looking, staring him into deep levels of retreat. Look at where we are in the last room at the end of the long hall. I will walk four times a day from there to here, and then there from here to there and all over again. I try to tell myself this is not a 13th century hospital for the destitute and the dying, but it is not so easy for me to be convinced. He liked listening to her, but she was speaking into free space. When I talk to non-itching people about the itch, they start itching. This is true? This is true, she said. I spoke to a group in Warsaw. They were professors and students. The longer I spoke about the itch-specific nerves, about sensory neurons in mice, the more scratching I could see in the audience. Did they ask questions about this? No questions. I do not accept questions in public forums. When she was finished poking at his extended arm, she did not return it to his side, but simply let it go, dropping it abruptly, and then took the long way around the table and lifted the other arm. He said, do you ever itch? She looked at him, finding new dimensions in this particular patient, and then repeated the question in a voice meant to resemble his. My only itch is what is around me, she said in her own voice, and why I am here. When the visit was ending, the patient put on his pants, shirt, and shoes, and the doctor wrote a couple of prescriptions. When you pick up the medications, you will be reading the instructions printed on the inserts, but you will not follow them. They are stupid and misleading. Do not use the medications two, three, four times a day. You are hearing me say this. Once a day. He felt obliged to repeat this. You will scratch and scratch, but you will also remember what I am saying. What are you saying? You are nobody without the itch. He took the long walk along the hall and thought of the doctor alone in her castaway office. The elevator took forever to arrive. When he and Anna went for a walk, sometimes bumping hips along the way, 
talking about nothing much. All they were doing, he thought, was being themselves. It was an innocence that placed them for a time beyond responsibility. But the affair gradually changed from a liquid to a solid. If we fall in love, what does it mean, she said. I find it strange to feel so much affection for a man I don't really know. He walked with his head down, concentrating on what she was saying. I don't really know you. This is not just the detail, she said, pretending to laugh miserably. People in the lobby were arrayed and waiting. One elevator was being repaired and the other was blinking down at them from the fifth floor, delayed in its descent. He decided to climb the stairs to his office, 11th floor, a few others joining him, a sense of shared complaint. Halfway up the first flight, he began counting the steps and then decided that he needed to go back to the bottom step and start over properly from one. He did this, occasionally looking down as he counted, aware that he was moving his lips. A man in a suit and tie and baseball cap squeezed past, taking two steps at a time. He'd gone a floor and a half before he began to notice the shoes he was wearing. He looked and counted, reminding himself of the fact that he didn't like these shoes and trying to understand why he'd bought them anyway. He began to climb more slowly, seeing himself walk back and forth in the shoe store, trying to feel his way into the shoes, not truly seeing himself, but experiencing a misty image somewhere in the air within arm's reach. People kept passing him on the stairs, and he kept looking down, counting the steps, seeing the shoes. He'd walked back and forth several times, and then sat a while, the only customer in the store, and examined one of the shoes, hand and eye, scrupulously. Was it too much trouble, too awkward, to tell the salesman that he didn't want the shoes? Did he think that the salesman would be disappointed, his day ruined? He didn't know the answer, but he was beginning to feel victimized, belatedly, by the salesman, the shoe store, and the shoes and he stopped counting the steps one flight before he reached his floor. In the office he sat at his desk, left wrist in the prime of its morning itch, and he looked out the window, his eyes sweeping across the face of the building in the semi-distance, revisiting the horizontal pattern of the windows. He looked left to right, reading the windows like a book, line by line. Finally, not to tell her felt like cheating. They had a corner table in a nearly empty cafe. His plan was to avoid details and simply say that the itch was a livable condition but not likely to be alleviated any time soon. In the meantime, they listened to thunder bouncing around the sky, and she spoke of country thunder when she was growing up, an approaching storm, her fearful wonder at the drum rolls and jagged flashes. He watched her talk, her fairness, the face and hair and small hands, the way she used the three middle fingers of one hand to brush lightly over the corresponding fingers of the other hand. A gesture of remembrance, anxious or soothing, he wasn't sure. It's not a contagious disease, he would say, or some ancestral burden that trails a family into future generations, and he might end with a dash of deadpan humor. If you itch, too, think of how much we'd have to talk about. The building where he lived was within walking distance, and he suggested that they go there. She'd never been to his apartment, and she shrugged a small okay. 
When she went to the restroom, he paused briefly and then hurried to the men's area and locked himself in a stall and lifted his left trouser leg and scratched frantically in terminal haste, returning to the table before she did. The rain was just beginning to fall, and they went single file along the walls of buildings, muttering mild swear words. In the apartment, he watched her stroll around the living room, noting the books and photographs, and looking briefly into the small, neat, narrow kitchen. She sat on a sofa, and he was in a chair on the other side of the coffee table. He gave her a brief history of places in which he'd lived. He was whispering for some reason. He said nothing about the itch. In bed, it was all body action, wordless. And in the interval that followed, he lay alone, absently scratching, and reminded himself that he'd placed all the tubes and jars inside the medicine cabinet and in the small storage area beneath the sink beyond her range of vision. This was not an involvement, he thought, in which each of them was no one without the other, but he didn't know what to make of it. He spoke her name aloud when she returned to the room. Then he walked her home, two hunched figures, behind an umbrella that he held tilted against the wind. Joel talked to him quietly in a corner of the office. It had happened again, an instance of spoken words in the soft splash of his urine in the bowl. Where, here? Home. Has to be home. Here I use the urinal. Home, there's just the bowl. Not simply a sound that resembles a word. It's saying something. But if it's a word, why can't you identify the word? I look at the little splash. I look and listen. I try. You think it's saying something. It has a certain expressiveness. It conveys. It communicates. He was blinking rapidly. Okay, it's a word, but how do you know it's an English word? That's my language. This is getting dumber and dumber, you know that? I'm telling you because I trust you. Sandra knows about this? I haven't been able to bring myself to tell her. Tell her. I'd be interested to hear. Picture the scene, Joel said. She follows me to the bathroom, stands and waits while I unzip. You can tell her without showing her. She'll laugh. She'll tell our kids. I didn't think of that. Eight years old, six years old. Imagine their response. Psalm. You remember, good for you. Trans-rational poetry. Shapes and sounds, the futurist, Zom. You remember, a shape, a sound. Tell your kids, Zom. Let them say the word. They went back to their desks and bent into the screens, scrolling through their messages. This is how near sleep attenuates a person's awareness. Everything else is gone. He is funneled into himself, no past or future the living itch, man-shaped. Robert T. Waldron, thinking incoherently, a body in a bedsheet. That was Joy Williams reading The Itch by Don DeLillo. The story was published in The New Yorker in August of 2017. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff 
wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. So, Joy, this story begins in the middle of a sentence or in the middle of a thought. It's, it's a very unusual way to start a story, the first line, but nobody showed up. So he, so he sat a while looking at the wall. Why, why does DeLillo do that? Well, I thought that was brilliant. And I yeah. wasn't even uh, aware of it until I got, when I read the story for the first time and got to the ending, which I thought was uh, brilliant. And then I realized he did the same thing at the very beginning of the story. Because you, you wouldn't want to start this story with a, uh, a recently divorced guy and his problems and his little pathetic morning of, his, uh, of his, his life and the girlfriend, you know. I mean, that people would put that down. But no, well, one thing, it's DeLillo you're reading, so you know you're in fabulous hands. But nobody showed up. I mean, you're on alert there. So uh, Where do you think he is? It's a Saturday. That's just it. Yeah, he's not at work. No. Where is he? Is he at he's, a doctor's appointment, but no one shows up? Is he... Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, he's already lost his, his life. There's a line a little further down about, uh, let me see, uh, over time a life slithered out. I think that, that's, so, that's so funny and, and so horrible because and this, is his, this is his new life. And, that's his uh, life. His existence <laughs> is slithering along. Yeah, yeah, nobody shows up. <laughs> and then when somebody does, it's the Anna with the one N uh, yeah. that he tries so hard to give meaning to and a background to, but there's nothing there. You know. Do you think he, when he first wrote this, there was a sentence before that first one that he cut off? I don't deign to, to say <laughs> how, he, how he begins yeah. or, or the yeah. structure. 
I have the feeling that first part came a little later in the construction of the story. That's yeah. what I would think yeah. because he, you know, that is pretty normal, unnecessary stuff. The recently divorced man, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, it 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 shows none of the promise of the people he meets here and the way they discuss the itch and the great philosophy behind it and uh, and and his Joel, the poet, <laughs> who wants to be a poet to the bone but uh, doesn't want to talk about the work. Yeah, and, he's given up trying to publish it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but he's so poetic, even his even his urine writes poems. <laughs> <laughs> but like like you said, he's there's this kind of constant search for meaning in the story that, or at least on Joel's part, Joel wants his, his pee to mean something, the sound of it. Joel wants there to be some kind of historical, biblical pattern that will give meaning to this itch. Our narrator, our man, wants his girlfriend's name spelling to mean something, yeah, to, no. to draw on something. We, d- we don't get to the meaning ever, really. No. no. And... Uh... Zom. I mean, that really was a a, a futurist. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, the, the organization yeah. of tr- people trying to get to some sort of mystical, and that's why I I mentioned earlier terminal A to terminal B, and they're the yeah. bir- they're supposed to just comfort us. I mean, uh, they're saying something, and what they're saying is we are extinct. Actually, we don't even exist. In you know, clearly in <laughs> between terminal A and terminal B, but we're not listening. And even when, uh, uh, if if we did know, you know, what animals were saying, I mean, uh, they were talking in the language we were familiar with. I mean, we we still would not act ac- accordingly. Those, uh, those poor we, birds. We poor st- taped birds. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Those poor taped birds. <laughs> um. One of the things I noticed too about it was the uh, the uh, you know the oracle at Delphi. You know the the cave. The the, the 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 enclosure, and now it's been reduced to to our times, our contemporary times, which Tolillo has captured perfectly, to a toilet bowl. Yeah, I mean it hasn't gotten as far as the urinal, but it right. is. But the bowl, <laughs> the sacred, the sacred shape. Yeah, the bowl is now the one that might might uh, and, and give the, us give us meaning and so we've come a long way from uh, 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 you know true prophecy or true comprehension of our situation and that that prophecy now is completely unintelligible mm-hmm. he can't make it out he thinks it's a word mm-hmm. doesn't know what it is so Joel wants so badly for this itch to be a symbol of something do you think it is is it a regular itch I had the feeling that the case situation here is the itch is from within and the itch desperately wants to escape. It's not something that's from the outside, an environmental anomaly or environmental sickness. It's within and it wants to escape this body of Robert T. I like the the, the T (laughs) of Waldron. Uh, it it wants out. His, his, his the life is already slithered out <laughs> that he mentions, <laughs> and I think even the itch, which is only belongs to him, is very Kafka esque. I mean, nobody else can scratch the itch. Do not allow this to you know. And uh, this itch is for you alone, and it wants out. And I think at the the the, the end of the story is chilling because it is. He's a body in a bedsheet. 
it has no, the life is gone. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, I mean, you know, it normally an itch could be seen as kind of a, a desire to do something. You know, I've got an, I've got an itch to go over there, you know, I've got an itch <laughs> to see her. Um, and here it seems to have something to do with the fact that these people aren't listening to their bodies, right? Their bodies are crying out. Their urine's crying out. Everything is, <laughs> is saying, pay attention. You know, he goes through this series of doctors and he gets to the last one, and that's the one you're talking about, the kind of philosopher of the itch, right? I do not accept questions in public for <laughs> do not answer questions in public forums. Right? She's wonderful. And she <laughs> she's the one who tells him, without this itch, you're nobody. Right. Do you mm-hmm. think do you think she's right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> An awful thing to tell your patient. You know, I know the doctors he goes to are pretty Yeah. Uh, pretty fascinating. She's built her career around itching. And she's not even the itchmeister. She's the right. <laughs> she's the one he goes to, yeah. to afterward. And she doesn't she say too at your age, I mean, this will be be constantly more and more. There'll yeah. only the itch. There'll be no. Not you'll as much. walk less and talk less. Walk but you'll less and itch. talk less, but you'll still have that. Oh. That itch. I mean, I wonder if it's if it it's a kind of a life force. You know, like like you said, this man has slithered out to to <laughs> nothingness, and this is the only thing still vivid with him, still bright. And he's such a you know he's he's not a great character in fiction. I mean, he's <laughs> he's nothing. I mean, none of you know they're they're more comfortable. In empty theaters and in looking, not even imagining the lives behind the windows of the building opposite, but uh, they are the situation we find ourselves in, which yeah. is uh, a, a, that quest for meaning that just does not exist. And right. It probably goes back to that first line where he sits and, and looks at the wall. You know, he's constantly looking, mm-hmm. right? He's looking at that building across the street. He's looking in the mirror. He's Looking, he even has those amazing moments with Anna where they look into each other's eyes, and he doesn't know what they're looking for, how what he's supposed to be seeing. Um, and in a sense, it is looking without seeing what he keeps doing. Mm-hmm. He's looking at the TV screen while they're having brunch. He can't stop looking at it. What, what is that looking a compulsive thing, or is it just nothing's happening? Well, yes, because he, he prefers when he goes to a movie... He he prefers to think about the emptiness of the theater or or the in, environment or, or no longer uh, hearing content <laughs> or uh, we're 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 seeking but we've lost the ability to know or even 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 to imagine. Um, that's why I just I, I love the all the uh, the bowl <laughs> Im- <laughs> imagery and uh, and searching for something in the most unlikely places. But the conversation at brunch, you know, they're kind of talking about politics or, you know, the current state of affairs. And suddenly Joel's about to have some incredibly profound thought. And it's <laughs> just the the letters of one woman's name or yes. in the other woman's name. Um, he's thinking about letters, yeah. I suppose. And then Anna's response is, I'm looking at the food I'm on not, my plate. Mm-hmm. So she's looking at something, right? Maybe this is a slight scolding of the boyfriend who's staring at a tv screen but what mm-hmm. what happens in that conversation right the, uh, the and this is the situation we're in we can't of course it's easy to talk about the current political crisis or uh, 
or the environment or this or that, but it's beyond us. We can't grasp it. There's nothing new to say about it. And, uh, and so we're look, we're reduced to where this crowd is, uh, is, is, is looking. And yet at the same time, they know that if Joel ever confesses to his kids that they're, what their pee might be saying something too, you know, I mean, what kind of a reaction are you going to get from an eight-year-old and a six-year-old? It's uh, not... <laughs> well, they might be more in touch with what their bodies are <laughs> that's, saying. That's right. Yeah. yeah. As you were saying earlier, um, you know, we don't, we don't get this man's, he's not a great character. We don't even get his name mm-hmm. until the last sentence of the story. Why do that? Why does Delillo do that? Oh, I think because when we're given his name, it means it, it means nothing. It gives us no more information about about him, uh, what his parents thought when they were naming him with that with a T, not maybe a full name. I mean, mm-hmm. it uh, it just shows us again, even in the reading of fiction, that we have very little grasp of uh, of who these imaginary people are. Not to say nothing of our 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 real understanding of the flesh and blood people that we, uh, that we meet. Yeah. Yeah. The others get names. He just, that's he's, right. He's just the itch. He's, he's a, the living itch, man-shaped. Uh, man-shaped. Yeah. yeah. And a body in a bed sheet. <laughs> that does not sound promising. It doesn't yeah. have a future. I mean, I've always thought in the short, so the most effective short stories to me are one when you realize that this, this terminates this character's life in some way, not necessarily in, through death or, uh, you know, even tragically, but that's it. There's kind of no more. This is why I find the short story so interesting and, and so basically sort of, you know, a, a chilling, a chilling form, not a, not a comfy form. I've said that before, but <laughs> I mean, but here I think uh, it's, it, 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 it definitely follows that path. Yeah. And in a sense, it's not really a story. We, we don't have a, a sort of starting point and ending point, really. We have a series of quite short scenes, fragments, no real attempt to fit them together. There's a mm-hmm. slight progression in this relationship. We don't know where we start. We don't know where we end, but that last section could have come anywhere in mm-hmm. the story. You don't know. Is it a story? Oh, I think it definitely <laughs> is. <laughs> How was it presented to you? <laughs> it's not a narrative. <laughs> Why build a piece of writing that way in, in these fragments? People are desperately trying to do different things with this, this story now, and it does, uh, to me, this is, this is, this is a, perfect, uh, a perfect story and very much mirrors the, the situation of our life, the people in it, the, the work we do, our desperate need for someone to explain ourselves to. And uh, so it's got all the uh, characteristics of an effective realization yeah (laughs) and it's also as we said very very funny (laughs) right it's like the story is that there is no story Mm -hmm. that this this man is not Mm -hmm. we're not going to start with an itch and solve it Mm -hmm. by the end Mm -hmm. but as you've mentioned too it used to be the itch was kind of nice i have an itch to do something Mm -hmm. in other words you know but but this itch is just uh, it's uh, not going to a new and wonderful place or having a an excited positive idea about doing something it's no. <laughs> There's also a gratification to scratching an itch, mm-hmm. right? And he, he, <laughs> he has that. He allows himself that gratification sometimes. Mm-hmm. When he runs in the bathroom and scratches his ankle quickly, mm-hmm. he runs back out. 
No one else can, you know, that's no the information that yeah. uh, he gets from uh, one of his doctors. And, and this little one over here, it's not scratch-worthy. It's not worthy. Just no. ignore that one. But yeah. he, does, he does say to Joel that, that the scratching is almost revenge, right? There's that moment where he starts off lightly with his fingertips, and then he starts digging in like a, you know, an earth mover. Because he hates his body, and doesn't he? And he contemplates... When, even when he's looking at the new woman in his life. I mean, that it's fascinating to him that the body hasn't really changed that much. It's just this human body that hasn't evolved that much over all this time. It's just a massive yeah. flesh. The body is kind of... <laughs> is it necessary? <laughs> and yet there's that, that one happy moment is when they're about to, to go to bed for the first time and he's sort of undressed and he stands there and he says, the itch went away and she didn't, you know, and there's, they smile at each other. Um, oh, that's kind of nice. <laughs> there's that moment, uh, you know, he's standing there in, in, in scrutiny. She's scrutinizing him from mm-hmm. the bed and he likes that. So there's one little moment of liking this body Aww, that, that's yeah. betraying <laughs> him. <laughs> I like the moment when he, he, his wife's smile. Mm-hmm. And how he could get behind that smile. And again, it was invention, you know, the grandmother that was a good storyteller or something. I mean, he's, it's not really, he's imagining this, but at the same time, what is behind that? And this was, I thought was, was very, that was positive. That was a beautiful Yeah, <laughs> and I thought what was telling is that when she has that smile that he loves, she's not looking at him. Mm-hmm. She's looking elsewhere. She's looking into herself. She's looking yeah. somewhere else. Yeah. There's no no aggression of looking, and somehow the looking in the story can feel aggressive. Right. Um, yeah. She she's looking back into the transfiguring past. Is that the line there? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, Lilo does not do this, but one of my pet peeves in terms of language is when people misuse itch for scratch. <laughs> so people say, "I'm just itching my arm. I'm Ooh. just itching my nose." People say that all the time. And I, I have to feel like, no, it's your nose is itching, so you're scratching it. But you have to feel like but there's some confusion about, you know, which came first, the itch or the scratch or the chicken or the egg. You know, what it, What are we doing when we do this to ourselves? It's, yeah. it's, it's all on this strange border of pain and pleasure and self-acknowledgement and gratification. and Right. And you can't really do scratch another one's itch. It will... Never really, uh, right? Like you can't tickle or, yourself, right? Right? Yeah, <laughs> you can't scratch someone else. <laughs> have it be, have it be pleasant. Years um, alone. Yeah, yeah. There was a, a, a nonfiction piece in the New Yorker some time ago about people with obsessive itches. You know, where they can't stop scratching the scratch through the skin to the bone and and so on, destroy destroy their bodies. You know, and there's Ooh. there's a sense. There's a sense that what happens here is psychological rather than physical. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, and it's not even, I mean, it's pointed out one little place was not scratch-worthy or itch-worthy. Now you've got me (laughs) making making those mistakes. But also he is not, she has seen much worse situations. I mean, so he's not even exceptional in, in in this way. He's just, you know. It's just Robert Waldron. Waldron with a body and a bed sheet. And, uh, and even his itch isn't uh, spectacular, but it's just going to continue with him forever. I wonder if, I wonder if, he, if uh, DeLillo kind of wrote his way to that name. 
You know, that's why it doesn't happen until the end. It's interesting. When I was um, talking to him, the New Yorker Festival, we were talking about uh, Mao Tu and the character Bill Gray. And yes. he said that he didn't have a name for him at first. So he just used a kind of provisional name, Bill Gray, as a sort of placeholder. And then he, he, he and became. Then he, he, the character became he cre- Bill Gray. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, that was his name. You couldn't change it. And in a sense, I feel like this man is the itch, and he sort of eventually begrudgingly becomes Robert T. Waldron. Yes. Nice. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Joy. Deborah, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to read this. Don DeLillo is the author of more than a dozen novels, including White Noise, which won the National Book Award for Fiction in 1985, Mao Tu, which won the Penn Faulkner Award in 1992, Underworld, and most recently Zero K, which was published in 2016. In 2013, he was awarded the inaugural Library of Congress Prize for American Fiction. Joy Williams is the author of four novels and five story collections, including The Quick and the Dead, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and 99 Stories of God. Her most recent book, The Visiting Privilege, New and Collected Stories, was published by Knopf in 2015. You can download more than 140 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Colin Barrett reads Stuff by Joy Williams, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com.